0: Over the next couple weeks, before we jump back into our fall series, we're going to be looking at different aspects of life in community inside of the people of God. And so here this morning we are looking at 1 Peter chapter 4. Before we dive into our text this morning, we're going to start off with a fun-filled group exercise. So I would ask everybody to stand, please. And we're going to do this two times, just as a heads up. The first time it goes like this. If you started attending Cornerstone more than four years ago, sit down. And if this is your second tour here, that would count to keep standing. All right. So with that, just as a reminder that within our own community, we turn over greater than 50% of our church every three years as people come in and out and move through our area. Second activity. All right, stand back up again. All right. If you are... Um, An adult, I want you to not include your childhood in this. And if you are under the age of 22, you just go along with your parents on this one. All right. If you have had less than five residences, sit down. Like you have lived where you had to change your address. If you have had to do so less than five times, sit down. All right. If you have had to change your address less than ten times... Sit down. If you had to change your address less than 15 times, sit down. All right, less than 20 times. All right, 21. 22. 22 for Doug. 23. Twenty-three for Chrissy. Twenty-four. Twenty-five. Twenty-six. Twenty-seven. Twenty-eight. Twenty-nine for Rich. Thirty. Thirty. All right. Wow. Thirty. I would say I'm glad that the parents are here because that was elevated a little bit more at the first sermon, first service for the Lee family. Uh. Oh, okay. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. But you are topping out at over 30? Over 30. Wow. Props to you guys, right? When we look at this, and, and the, as you know, when I started doing this, what you saw was not surprising, right? Okay, 30 times is probably surprising. 29 times is probably supr- surprising. Over 20 times, still probably not that surprising, right? When you look at that, not only the transience of our own community, how long people have been here at Cornerstone, and the transience of the lifestyles that we live, is it any wonder that for many people in our community, their lives feel so disconnected? Is it any wonder that we feel like our lives are kind of scattered over the, all over the place, and that we live this life of transience without permanence? And then what often happens is that we you move into a new community, And as you move into a new community, what happens, your lives get busy. And so maybe you buy a house in Lexington Park, and then you go to church over here in California, and you have a job at Pax River, and your kids are involved in a sports team that meets in Ridge. And you've got some other family activities because your other child's involved in a sports team in Hollywood. And then you go to swim team and other activities that are in Leonardtown. And then you've got relationships, and you want to go to a small group because you've connected with people, and you find out that they live in Golden Beach wherever that is, right? And all these different places that our lives are scattered between, is it any wonder that we feel so disconnected? Is it any wonder that within many of us there is this deep longing for belonging? Or moreover, that there is a longing and a desire for permanence in the midst of so much transience. Well, the Apostle Peter, in this passage, is writing to a church that is burdened by life. They are weary of the challenges of living in a world that is hostile. They are weary of the challenges of living in a pagan world. The challenges that they've had have been overwhelming. They've been separating them from one another. They're not really sure who they can trust, not really sure who they can be in relationship with because of the persecution in their situation. They're isolated from one another. And to this church, in the midst of the struggle, Paul gives these words. He says to them, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. When do you need to love other people? You need to love people earnestly when they sin against you. You need to have love that covers sins when people have hurt you. And here's one way you do so. Show hospitality to one another Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on it as we begin. Father, we pray that you would help us to get a picture of how you have welcomed us, how you have shown love to us when we were strangers, and being overwhelmed by your grace and by your love and by your acceptance, Lord, would you work in us that we would do the same to others as you have done for us. We pray all this in your Son's name. Amen. This morning, we're going to be looking at this command about, that's a trademark of the life of the Christian church to show hospitality and to practice hospitality. In particular, as we dive into this, we're going to first off look at the command of hospitality, then the meaning of hospitality, the focus of it, the challenge of it, and then finally the joy of hospitality as we dive in here. Paul gives this command to be hospitable. It's a command that's prevalent in many places throughout Scripture, but he identifies and he says to the church, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Speaking of their relationships for each other, that the relationships of the church are to be characterized by love. Relationships that are characterized by being hospitable. Relationships that are characterized that the context of relationship is not in a building, like a church, but in people's homes where life is shared with one another. Paul gives a similar teaching to Peter in Romans chapter 12, speaking of life in community. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Both Paul and Peter identifying that a trademark of the Christian life, and of the church, is that there are relationships that are actively engaged in active hospitality. One of our core values as a congregation is that we are an authentic community. And what that means is that we are a community where it is safe to be broken without fear of condemnation, that is a place where you can take the masks off that you put up throughout the week without fear of rejection, a place where there is gospel-inspired transparency, honesty, and accountability. And being a place where the Holy Spirit works to be a fertile ground for growth in a relationship with Him. That cannot happen simply in an hour and 20 minutes that we spend together on Sunday mornings. The only way that that type of community is going to be experienced... And grow is if we, are, if we follow the teaching that Jesus and all the scripture gives to us to engage in hospitality, that our lives would be intermeshed with one another, that our lives would overlap with one another, that instead of being these disconnected silos from all across Southern Maryland where we have pockets of life, that we instead have interconnected webs that overlap with each other and in which we inherently then feel more connected and more permanent in our location. But this command to show proper hospitality is prevalent throughout Scripture, going all the way back to Abraham and Sarah, where Abraham and Sarah welcomed strangers, where they cared for them, turned out to be angels, but they cared for them. They insisted on showing them honor. They insisted on being hospitable to them, and that became a model of what godliness looks like. Indeed, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul gives a list of qualifications for widows who are eligible to receive church support, and one of the qualifications for them is that they are those who have been known to show hospitality, that their life is characterized as being hospitable. And then Jesus makes it emphatically clear for anyone who calls calls themselves a follower of Christ in Matthew chapter 25, that this is part of what it means to know God is to show the hospitality that he has shown to us. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25. This is an extended passage that I'm going to read. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did you see a stranger? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when, did you see, "'And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you?' And the king will answer them, "'Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me.'" So Jesus is identifying that if you show hospitality to strangers, it is as if you are doing it to Jesus himself. And then he continues. Then he will say to those on his left, "'Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels.'" For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, "Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick" or in prison and did not minister to you, then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus' teaching is emphatic, that providing for the stranger, welcoming the stranger, is to care for Jesus himself. And indeed, Jesus says it clearly, that to refuse To care for the stranger, to refuse to welcome the stranger, is to refuse and to exclude Jesus himself. Now, this teaching makes us uncomfortable. Not only does it make us uncomfortable, it's also something that um, I think Scripture knows that we are not ready to do or eager to do. And so it tells us to do it again and again because we don't naturally do this. Hebrews 13, chapter, verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality. Why is he telling us to do this? Because we tend to neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unaware, referring back to Abraham and Sarah. So the command of Scripture is prevalent. That a trademark of the Christian community is that we are people who sh- actively practice and show hospitality to one another, but more than that, that we are a community that shows hospitality. That means welcoming people into our homes, that shows hospitality to those, yes, who we know, but especially to those who we don't know. Now, examining these passages might make you a little bit uncomfortable. You'll probably become more uncomfortable when we examine the meaning of hospitality itself. Here's what it means. The word for, here for hospitality is phyloxenia. It is a compound word, philo and now, Let me give a quick aside here. Is that when we do this, and when I do this periodically in sermons, the key to understanding scripture is understanding what the author intended as the author intended it. It is not finding the hidden puzzle in terms of words. Sometimes doing so is helpful. Sometimes it's not. For example, this word, which we'll look at in a minute, it's helpful to do this and it's consistent with its meaning and usage. And you can get that when you see a word like sand table. Sand table, okay, that makes sense. Sand plus table equals sand table. Yes, that's a helpful word. But it's not always helpful. For example, butterfly. Butter plus fly does not (laughs) equal the thing that you're used to seeing, right? Again, other times it's helpful. Haircut. Hair plus cut equals haircut. That's helpful. Hot dog. (laughs) Not helpful. (laughs) Right? Not helpful. I mention this is that because if you were someone who was learning English, the difference between a sand table and a butterfly or a hot dog, you would dissect them the same way and they would try to make sense of them the same way. Right? And so when we come to Scripture is that there are times when doing this is helpful because it reveals part of the meaning. There are other times that people do this, and you'll hear Bible teachers do this, that they'll dissect a word and come up with a word history that actually means nothing to do with its current usage, just like a hot dog. This time it's very helpful. So the word here is philozenia, which there's two kind of English cog- cognates here for like Philadelphia, philo, philo here meaning love right Philadelphia the city of brotherly love and xenia kind of like xenophobia xenia meaning strangers okay so the word here for hospitality and is consistent with its usage in scripture is what hospitality is is it is stranger love stranger love that christians are called to practice stranger love so let me ask you do you engage in Stranger love. Would this be be a trademark of your faith that if someone looked at your faith, you would say, I know those people are a Christian because they are ones who actively practice stranger love? This is just simply what the word means. Now, one recent writer, one by the name of Rosaria Butterfield, she says she talks about how instrumental hospitality was in her, her own conversion, and I'll share more about that in a minute. And she, she identifies, that, she says that what Christians are called to is radically ordinary hospitality. Isn't that a great phrase? Right? Radically ordinary hospitality. So the definition that she gives of hospitality, which I think is consistent with Scripture, is, she, is this. Is that hospitality, biblical hospitality, is using, Your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. Using your home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. This is really important, particularly in the historical context that Peter is writing to this church to show hospitality without grumbling. One, it was they didn't have hotels like we did. If someone was um, traveling, they oftentimes stayed in someone's house, house or paid rent, kind of like an Airbnb without the amenities and without the security of appealing to Airbnb if your rental goes wrong. But rather, it was necessary because Christians at this time were being persecuted. And so hospitality was especially necessary for Christians— so that they have a place that they could go that would be a safe place that they knew that they wouldn't be betrayed. A little bit more like the Underground Railroad. Peter encouraging them, saying, Hey, Christians, it's important to engage in stranger love. Hey, Christians, it's important to participate in the Christian Underground Railroad. It's important, as God has shown us, that you would provide a place that is an oasis for others. An oasis that provides not only physical safety, but also emotional safety. Hospitality, the biblical picture, is that it's a place where it's okay to struggle, a place where you can both know and be known in relationships. Relationships, hospitable relationships, where when there are offenses, they are overcome by love because believers are devoted to loving and to showing the love of Christ. This is this practice of stranger love, hospitality, hospitality to both Christians and to non-Christians is one of the trademarks of Christianity throughout history. Indeed, it's one of the principal ways that the Christian church has grown throughout the world is not through big events in churches, but rather through ordinary people doing radically ordinary things like opening up their home and making a practice of having regular meals with people they know and with people they don't know, Rosaria Butterfield, before her conversion, was a lesbian tenured professor of English at Stanford University. And she identifies that it was Christian hospitality that in particular led to her conversion. In recent interviews, she was asked about what role did hospitality play in her life and her conversion? And you know, as you'll hear in a second, she would goes on to say that it was the hospitality that really made her can understand Christianity and see that it was something that she wanted. And it was through Christian hospitality that she herself no longer identified as or found her identity in her gender, her sexuality, her sexual preferences, but she found her identity and finds it, and being a Christian, and being a follower of Christ, in which her identity is now found. So the interviewer asks her the question What role did hospitality play in your willingness to hear the gospel? She says it made all the difference in the world, literally. She said, Before I met Ken and Floyd Smith, they were a pastor who lived across the street from her and her partner, I understood the gospel as a meta narrative that is an overarching story, a story that interprets life. She said, I understood the gospel as a meta narrative that depended on both ignorance and privilege. So the only, her, her understanding was that the only people to whom Christianity makes sense are those who are privileged and ignorant. She went on to say, I did not see how God's love could hold up next to poverty, child abuse, racism, and violence. I did not see how the good news could be good for someone like me an out lesbian feminist it seemed like the gospel's good news was only good for people who already fit into a politically conservative worldview people who had who never had to worry about the things that i had to worry about also the gospel's main point that jesus will save me from my sins had no receptor point for the postmodern rousseau abiding thinker i once was what i needed and what I learned in the home of Ken and Floyd Smith was that I was an image-bearer of a holy God and that such an identity came with responsibility as well as with blessing. And it was learned through their hospitality and relationship. Another example, I permission to share this, Janice Shoup, her children's ministry director, identifies that three of the most influential people in her life One of them was a family that she lived with for a week on a mission trip, is that she herself grew up in a home that was divorced, and then went on a mission trip to a YMCA, or they were supposed to stay at a YMCA, but the YMCA became vandalized, and so she ended up, um, they ended up taking the people who were supposed to live in the YMCA and assigning them to live with families. So for one week, she lived with this Christian family. And, she said, the best thing about this Christian family was they weren't perfect. Like, they had their issues, they had their conflicts, they had their problems. But it modeled something for her that she had never seen. And modeled something for her that she says, I want that in my life. I think particularly today, as we continue to have the rise and the casualties of both the sexual revolution, the marriage revolution, and the identity revolution, is that there there is more and more increasing number of casualties that the idea of both biblical hospitality, a Christian marriage, a Christian family, is something that is so foreign to the vast majority of our culture. Recently, our family, when we were gone on vacation, we went to a family camp. And at family camp, you do camp stuff, but we have a counselor who was assigned to be with our family and kind of help us and take care of our family over the course of the week. And at the end of the week, as we were all saying our goodbyes, you know, I said, you know, thank you so much for helping us this past week. It was really great to get to know you. And she said, no, I really want to thank you. And I said, yeah, sure, you know, right, right. We're just exchanging niceties, right. You know, thank you, thank you, right. And she goes, no, really. She said, and this was the only week that she was there over the course of the summer. She said, I'm really thankful to be here this week and to see what Christian families can look like. And she said, it's really helped me to see what I can hope for in a marriage. Things that she hadn't known and things that she herself hadn't experienced. And so you and I, and that we are surrounded by neighbors, team members, co-workers, teammates, foreign nationals, students here who are here studying, for whom the idea of actually being in an active relationship with a Christian, for most, they have never had that. Indeed, if you want to take it to a next level, seeing a Christian marriage and or a Christian family with all of its dysfunction and challenges is also something that is completely foreign. It is a prime opportunity that the Lord gives us to share his love and to help people know his love. As an aside, let me state this, is that as you're listening to this, and this idea in terms of being hospitable and letting people into your home, letting people behind the wall that you have put up, If that is especially terrifying because your family is a disaster and your marriage is a mess and you really like living behind the facade or you need the facade in order to get by because you need the facade of everybody thinking that you've got your life all together and you need to keep people out because it is such a mess inside the walls of your home, I would plead with you to talk to somebody. Talk to one of our group leaders, talk to one of our elders, talk to our counselors who come down on Friday. But there is too much at stake. Too much at stake for your own souls, the souls of your children, let alone those of your neighbors, your coworkers, your community, for you to live a life of falsehood. Because eventually it will come crumbling down. And Jesus invites you into a place of healing that comes through pursuing him. And so this picture of biblical hospitality is using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers' neighbors and neighbors' family of God. That's the meaning of hospitality. Let's take a look at the focus of it. The focus of hospitality. What do we seek to focus on? And this is so important because our tendency is to replace hospitality with a huge counterfeit. Something that has the appearance of hospitality but actually is nothing of the sort. And this becomes apparent as we'll see here in this verse. Verse 10 says this, "As each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace." Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves By the strength that God supplies. This is immediately following, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. What is the focus of hospitality? It is on service to others. Service in making other people feel welcome, making other people feel more important than yourselves. But the huge counterfeit to this biblical picture of hospitality of welcoming people into our life, and welcoming people into our mess. The counterfeit of hospitality is entertainment, is entertaining people. You see, what entertainment focuses on is it focuses on impressing. Oh, I went over to their house, and her cooking was so much like Reed Drummond. I felt that I was living with the pioneer woman here in Southern Maryland. And the way that he cooked those tomahawk steaks, I mean, Bobby Flay on Iron Chef has absolutely nothing to go against that guy, right? I mean, the focus of entertainment is on impressing other people. But the focus on hospitality is on serving them, on making them feel welcome, on making them feel that this is a place that they, can, they are accepted and a place in which they can be loved and be honest, It is a place that is concerned about creating, helping people move from being strangers to neighbors and neighbors to being family of God, and where people can do that with freedom. And it's not a place that's concerned about whether or not this meal is going to get posted on Instagram or Snapchat, right? Food's one of the most popular things posted, right? You know that on social media, Um, but focused on serving, uh, serving other people. So, here are a couple signs that you might be more concerned about entertainment than you are about hospitality. So, a couple signs. You are obsessively concerned about the cleanliness of your home before you have people enter. Your family members fear the hours before guests arrive. You tend to overspend on food or ingredients in fear that you might potentially run out or things might not be completely perfect. Perfect. Your concern is that you are focused on what other people are going to think and whether or not other people are going to like it instead of focusing on what can I do to make this, this person or this, these people feel welcome in our home and in our space. Let me also say this: is if any of the ladies here this morning are are feeling particularly burdened and overwhelmed by this, let, re, let me remind my brothers that in 1 Timothy three and in Titus chapter one, the attributes of a godly man is that they are identified as being hospitable; that they are men who model stranger love; they are men who are known for moving people from making strangers neighbors and for making neighbors the family of God. They are known as men who show hospitality as God has shown them hospitality. Our society here in Southern Maryland too, and many people who come to our church are lonely and alone people. And your home is one of the best tools that God gives to advance his love and grace and truth in our community. And this church, and I'm thankful for the welcoming atmosphere that is present within our church, but this church can become a a friendlier, more loving community if we consistently open our homes, not only to one another, but also to strangers. That we open our homes to those we know, but we also open it to those that we don't know. Part of God has reasons God has put us here in this community is so that we would show the love of Christ here in Southern Maryland that we would be a community that overflows with the love of love of Christ that other people know and experience that the way that that's principally going to occur is not in this room but it's going to occur by inviting people into your home and sharing meals together now you may be sitting here thinking you know what nobody has invited me to dinner well they're probably thinking the same thing about you <laughs> right? These should be these overlapping webs webs of relationships as we share hospitality with one another. How do you do that as families or individuals? Well, life is busy. And probably the way that it's going to happen is that we need to be reminded, like scripture reminds us, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Don't neglect it. Set a goal to say, hey, we're going to invite some people over to our house at least once a quarter, a couple times a year. We're going to invite some people we know and some people that we don't know so that we would be following stranger love and showing the love of Christ. So the focus of hospitality is on service to others. What is the biggest challenge to hospitality? Verse 9 tells us, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Grumbling. Now, I would imagine that in a message like this, by this point in the sermon, some of you have had grumbling going on in your mind while you have been sitting here listening to this. Some of you might be concerned, like, how much fellowshipping is necessary when we're in relationship with other other people? Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. What's a different way to put it? What are great obstacles to stranger love? Simply, it's our own selfishness, right? We don't want to be inconvenienced. We want our privacy. We want our time alone, without other people. We become consumed by our personal comforts, which means we have moved here and gotten good jobs so that we can fill it. So that can so that we can move here. I can get a good job and I can buy a big house and fill it with lots of stuff that I can enjoy all by myself, and nobody's going to mess it up, right? Because we want to be free to go about our own business without being concerned about anybody else. For some of us, the answer is just because we're greedy. We don't want to share our food, our home, or our money, or we are afraid that if we let people into our house, that we'll be used or that our property will be damaged in some regard. But as Butterfield would remind us, our homes are not our castles. Indeed, they are not even ours. I mean, we who are Christians, and I know not everyone here is today, but we who are Christians, we would readily profess that all that I have is a gift of God. We would readily profess that we are just stewards of the things that God has entrusted to us. What that means, then, is that your home is not your home. Right? It means, then, that your home is God's home for God to use for the furtherance of his kingdom, and for the advancement of his gospel message. So we've looked at here this morning the command of hospitality, the meaning of hospitality, the focus of hospitality, and the challenge to it. But let's consider for a moment the joy of hospitality. Why does Scripture give this command again and again to us? Because like every other command of Scripture, God is calling us to do For others, the very thing that he has done for us. Is that God himself left his home in heaven. He became man in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one that scripture says is the living stone rejected by men. That Jesus is the one who was wrongly condemned. The only person who never did anything wrong, but was condemned as one who had done everything wrong. He was rejected by the world, rejected by his culture, rejected by the religious establishment, rejected by his closest companions. And as he was dying on the cross, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Ultimately rejected by God. There is no one who has ever been so lonely. There is no one who has experienced the depth and extreme loneliness, or aloneness, as Jesus did on the cross. And he did so, so that you and I would never be alone, so that we would be accepted into his household, so that the stranger love of God would pursue and chase after you and me until it welcomes us into his, own, into his own family. Some of you here this morning are lonely. Some of you are alone. And some of you are alone because you have refused to let other people in your life or you've avoided having anyone else come closer to you, and you've avoided opportunities to know anybody else, you've avoided participating in community life. Some of you might be alone because you have destroyed every relationship in your life, and you don't have any relationships left to destroy. And so you are not only lonely, but you're also alone. And wherever you are on this, is that Jesus comes to each one of us. And in this beautiful picture of what a relationship with Jesus Christ looks like, he describes hospitality with your Heavenly Father and with Jesus himself. And Scripture says in Revelation, Jesus declaring, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and eat with you and you with me is that, yes, a picture of a relationship with the living God is that your sins are forgiven and that the judge declares you not guilty. But another picture of what a relationship with the living God is is intimate fellowship around food, about being in a relationship where you are both known and you know the other, that you are both known by God And you know God in a dynamic relationship where you are loved and accepted because your sin has been paid for by Jesus Christ. And you now, through faith in him, are accepted into his family. And so particularly for those of you that are lonely or alone, Jesus stands at the door and he knocks. And he knocks and he's inviting you to open the door that he would come in and share a meal with you have an intimate relationship with you. And for some of you, I imagine that what's happened is that as you've heard this, the way that you have, you've, there's been something about Christianity, about Jesus that's has attracted you, but you've wanted to keep it at a level of a distance, right? It's kind of like when the guy's walking down the street selling solar panels, right? The, the Facebook in the group in the neighborhood says there is a solicitor coming through the neighborhood and you say, okay, maybe I want the information, but I certainly don't want him in my house. Yes, Jesus, I want the information about you, but I certainly don't want you in my life. And so you lock the door. And what Scripture is inviting you, what Jesus is inviting you is that he is at the door knocking. And for some of you, what you need to do today is you need to take the deadbolt off. You need to unlock the door. You need to remove the couch that you put in front of the deadbolt to make sure that nothing happened after that. You need to unlock the door and let Jesus in so that you can know him and so that you can be known and loved and accepted and that you can be known as a child of God. Scripture goes on to give a picture of what happens when individual Christians join together as children of God accepted into his household who have received the stranger love that Christ has given them. And the charge that he gives comes earlier in Peter, the same book that we're looking at, and Peter says, as you come to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. You see what's happening? Is that Christ comes into your life, and then you get united into a house that serves as a basis for hospitality and fellowship with others. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. That is a priest, one who mediates between God and people. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He goes on to describe... Lest you forget, you are not this individual isolated Christian that has this individual isolated relationship. No, you are part of the people of God. Live as the people of God. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were wandering off, isolated, individual. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We show hospitality because God has shown hospitality to us. We engage in stranger love. Because God loved us when we were strangers. We welcome people into our families because God, through Christ, has welcomed us into his family. We welcome strangers into our homes because Christ, when we were strangers, welcomed us into his. We love others deeply because God has loved us deeply and it gives us great joy to show his hospitality to others. Is this a command of scripture? Yes, but it is much more than that. It is God inviting you to participate in his work. God inviting you to share his love with others. God inviting you to welcome others into your home as God has welcomed you into his home so that they can experience the love of God and be welcomed into his home as well. If you have been made a part of the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ, then Peter exhorts you Above all, love each other deeply and offer hospitality without grumbling. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you offer hospitality to us without grumbling. I praise you that you did not grumble when your Father sent you to leave your home in heaven to enter into a dark, isolated, lonely, and broken world. And you didn't grumble about it. You didn't complain about it. But in fact, you used all of the riches, all of the wealth that you had so that we who were strangers to the promises of God would not simply be made neighbors, but that we would be made children of God, members of your household, co-heirs with you. And you give us the privilege to call you Father. Lord, you don't simply welcome us in to share a meal. You adopt us into your family to share meals with you forever. Lord, because of your great love that you have shown to us, may we extend that to others with joy and with love. In your name we pray. Amen. Because He loves us, let's respond to Him. Please stand.